Hey everyone, welcome to the Rupa Subramanya show. I am Rupa Subramanya. Today we dive into a story that lays bare the shocking truth behind a narrative that has dominated headlines in Canada and abroad for a very long time. Remember in 2021, there were these horrifying allegations that surfaced regarding the discovery of 215 children's graves at the site of a former residential school in Camp Oops, British Columbia. It was an allegation that sent shockwaves through the media landscape, portraying Canada as this genocidal nation. Now let's start with the facts. There is no hard evidence to support these allegations that 215 children's graves were found at this site of the former residential school. Now, despite this lack of evidence, media outlets, legacy media outlets, including the New York Times, the newspaper of record, rushed to amplify these claims, fanning the flames of hate and division in Canada. They painted a picture of Canada as this country steeped in guilt and remorse and shame and that it was a genocidal nation. It wasn't until May 2022 that other media outlets began to question this narrative, with the New York Post even going so far as to label it the biggest fake news story in Canada. The skepticism was growing, but the damage had already been done. Fast forward to today and the results of an excavation in Pine Creek, Manitoba, once part of a residential school from 1890 to 1969, have been made public. But what exactly is the truth behind its allegations and what has its impact been on Indigenous communities? To make sense of this, we'll be discussing these findings with an expert on the subject. Karen Restoul is Vice President of Crestview Strategy and is a member of the DACA's First Nation and has a unique perspective on the issues facing Indigenous communities in Canada. Hi, Karen. It's great to have you on my show uh, to talk about a very, very important topic, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Let me first start by asking you, Karen, um, the allegations of unmarked graves uh, gained widespread attention after the claims in Camp Loops, uh, BC back in 2021. Um, can you t discuss the impact of these allegations have had on Canada and its First Nations communities? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a big question, Rupa. <laughs> First of all, thanks for having <laughs> me uh, to have uh, this conversation with you, uh, and your, and your followers and listeners, um, I think it's a very timely one seeing as tomorrow we're going into the, um, exactly. uh, the third national day for truth and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. The way I view the events, um, that surfaced in 2021, um, I, I see that in, in a few different ways, uh, from a few different lenses, as an Indigenous person, um, none of this surprised me. Uh, our communities have long talked about, or survivors have long talked about, families have long talked about uh, the kids in their communities who uh, were forced to attend residential school and then never made it back home. Like those were just stories that existed. Um, so on that end, um, it was something that just kind of reaffirmed uh, what we knew to be true. Um, and in that, I think, uh, was probably, how would I describe it, um, emotionally overwhelming, because uh, it was, you know, it kind of was a reminder of that whole experience and that system uh, that came down into our families and communities and disrupted them. So it was quite uh, tumultuous, I think, emotionally for a lot of folks who, you know, who hadn't yet really kind of resolved themselves on that end. Um, 
through the lens of uh, of a Canadian uh, standing, you know, squarely next to other Canadian citizens. Um, I had a ton of non-Indigenous people within uh, within my circles reach out to say, oh my gosh, I had no idea um, that, you know, kids passed away. Uh, and, you know, now I'm diving into uh, the details in and around residential school and and what occurred at um, a lot of these schools. Um, so it was a bit of a, a blow up moment for Canada in that, um, you know, as Canadians, we were kind of taking a deeper dive into uh, into the those federal policies that created those situations and created a lot of discomfort and unease. And then there's a third part um, that I think merges like me personally, both as an Indigenous woman and as a proud Canadian. Um, it's the part where you look forward. So it's like, okay, so now more people in Canada know that this happened. Our communities, you know, are also kind of like getting themselves together to be able to undertake the work to, to get the answers that so many families are looking for. And it's the action part is how do we organize ourselves to take that first step forward and bring about resolution, answers, clarity, certainty to a situation that, uh, that has a lot of uncertainty. So that's, that's what I would say about, uh, about that one. Oh the, yeah, no, absolutely, Karen. That's uh, that's well said. Um, but uh, let me ask you this: I mean, there is no question uh, that uh, First Nations people in Canada and North America in general, um, you know, there was a cultural genocide of sorts that happened to them, and you know, even to this day, um, um, you know, I've looked at some of the data, and uh, they underperform. Uh, they're they're one of the poor, one of the most poorest communities in Canada. Uh, they they underperform even relative to new immigrants uh, to Canada um, on a range of socioeconomic uh, indicators uh, indigenous uh, people um, you know are just doing very very badly um, the fact of the matter is that these the the unmarked graves the controversy that erupt, erupted in 2021 uh, the 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 excavations have yielded no evidence of human remains it that what I want to say here is that doesn't mean that one is denying what happened to First Nations people. I just want you to address why. I mean, the fact is that there was no evidence of human remains at these sites. And and the media went ahead and said that there were, uh, you know, 215 bodies found on these sites. What do you make of the media reporting of this when, when, when in reality, after the fact, uh, there were no human remains that were found on these sites? Yeah, I think the media has had to face itself in its own coverage of the situation. Um, it's interesting, like, uh, the choice of language that was used in 2021 to describe to Kamloops' experience, you know, at no point did any leadership into Kamloops or any other community, say bodies um, or mass graves or other terms to kind of amplify uh, and exaggerate what we were dealing with. Um, that said, uh, it, this is where I think media and kind of media strategy kind of misses the mark. It's like, do we really have to exaggerate? the fact that some kids turned up dead at residential schools, like 
I don't know that we have to exaggerate that point. Um, and I can appreciate that, you know, you go to journalism school and, and they teach you how to write in a compelling way. And ultimately, whoever they write for wants to draw in readers and generate business. And it, it really comes down to revenue at the end of the day. I think we can all appreciate that. But at the same time, there has to be some ethical boundaries around uh, what it is that we're reporting on and how uh, and the language that we use to describe those situations. So um, I'm, you know, I think <laughs> there are some media who could benefit from a refresher on that end, uh, or possibly even sitting down with um, someone from the Indigenous community to kind of um, put a bit of color uh, into, uh, the, you know, the picture that they see in black and white. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the media did a great injustice here to two indigenous uh, communities uh, by by exaggerating uh, the in the manner that they did um, the crimes against indigenous people are horrific enough you don't need to uh, you know do this and uh, and you know and that it, it was deeply problematic in my opinion I want to ask you Karen if you can speak to the role of ground penetrating technology radar technology in these excavations and the limitations um, of this technology in confirming the presence of human remains yeah I'm I'm really encouraged that there's more people asking this question about what GPR actually does. Uh, mm -hmm. Because again, in the early reports, media was saying that GPR was being used to identify bodies. But those who kind of dive into the second or third layer in their research will learn that GPR doesn't identify a body. They identify anomalies, shapes, shadows, if you will. Um, and so uh, to report that their bodies, mm -hmm. I think, to our point that we've just made is flawed and irresponsible. Um, and it, you know, doesn't serve to help the situation at all. Um, uh, and Indigenous leaders have been speaking up more about this very point, um, using platform, trusted platforms where they can trust that the information that they convey is going to be, you know, uh, relayed to the public uh, in the same form that they deliver it. Um, so GPR is being used. Um, the way I understand it to be is that it, it is apparently the most recent technology that we have available to um, send waves into the ground to determine whether or not there are, there are anomalies. Uh, but I understand that um, the GPR work is being undertaken with church records. Uh, and apparently those ch church records will demonstrate what systems were utilized in, in burying uh, bodies. And so what I mean by that, for example, is like, you know, the Catholic church, I, I don't know the exact dimensions, they might choose to uh, bury people in one straight row, maybe about three feet apart, and then give a certain distance between that row and the next row. So there are patterns between each church and, uh, and um, each church has different patterns that they followed. And my understanding is that communities are taking all of the information that they have available to them as they undertake that work to complement the GPR process. Um, mm. But, you know, like I think a big theme here is certainty. Uh, we're all we're all craving for it. We're all working towards it. But at the same time, it's a bit of a a bit of a slippery slope to get there. Yeah, uh, going back to the media coverage of this um, of this incident, why do, why do you think it's, it took so long for the media uh, to 
begin to question this this claim that there were actual bodies that were found. You know, we're talking about the New York Times, a newspaper, a record. Um, you know, with with uh, uh, you know going with these headlines. Uh, you know, and what do you think uh, were the consequences of this delay in, you know, in in uh, in, in critically examining um, uh, the the matter uh, later on? Uh, what what do you think it did to um, to uh, to Indigenous people? Yeah. So, do you mean like the role in media in questioning the quality of reporting from twenty twenty one? Or do you yeah, mean the role I mean, of media and just not covering this at all until 2021? Because those well, are two. Both actually, <laughs> those are actually. No, I'm glad you pointed that that out. I mean, those are actually two very very important questions, and I'm glad that you included the le- the second one. But please, by all means, bo- both questions uh, require you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not a journalist. I write, uh, but I'm yeah. not a journalist, so I don't uh, engage fulsomely in that industry. Um, Maybe uh, there's a hesitation uh, to challenge your colleagues on the coverage, uh, quality mm-hmm. of coverage that time, t- you know, timeliness of coverage that they provide. The approach, who knows? You would know that more than me. Maybe it's the fact that we're too Canadian and we, you know, it's we want to light step around tough questions uh, and challenges and confrontations because uh, I think Canadians, by and large, don't like to engage in uncomfortable conversations, um, uh, possibly um, the nature of the challenge. Like, are we going to question the reporting on something so absolutely horrific and serious? Um, And if we are going to question, how would you go about doing that in a way that, you know, doesn't cast such a nasty light on you uh, as a journalist or as a reporter? So those are some questions. I don't have answers, but those are some questions that I, or some points that I would consider um, in evaluating, you know, the the, the very kind of like in, intra journalistic uh, accountability, mm. I guess you could call it. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like there's there's a way to do your job, and there's a way to do your job competently yet respectfully, right? And yeah. so um, I think accountability, transparency are such important principles, especially in today's world, because I, I I think we're losing a bit of sight on those um, principles generally in society. Um, but it might be worth explain, exploring, I think, uh, more deeply. Um, on, the, on the other point that I raised, why did it take so long? Like, this is a question I asked myself. Uh, <laughs> I followed the work of the TRC. Um, and uh, when they issued their final report in 2015, there's an entire volume on this, like an entire yeah. volume with data and case studies, if you will. Like, I don't I don't like calling them case studies, but like essentially mm-hmm. they're they're, you know, real life examples of children that um, that passed on while they were attending school. Right. While they, while they were at residential schools. So I, my, I have a big question on that, like why, like no one was really, I guess, paying attention or maybe it wasn't real enough because it was in black and white letters on paper and uh, people don't generally find, you know, facts or information compelling, um, doesn't really speak to, you know, the emotional part of our of our human system uh, that would respond to that. So mm-hmm. I think I try, like, I try not to harp too much on like, why didn't we? 
Um, and I think there's a lot of value in uh, the fact that we did get there, you know, six years later in 2021, that to Kemloops had the courage to share their story publicly. Um, and that um, subsequently, you know, the country, I think, grew a lot uh, in those days and in the weeks to follow. Yeah, I think I think the only positive thing that I can think about the media coverage about this is that it 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 once again highlighted the atrocities um, uh, that um, that indigenous people ha- have had to face, um, and you know I think it, it makes us once again aware of it. But I just wish they hadn't exaggerated uh, in the manner that they did because I feel like it ended up yeah re-traumatized. Uh, people once all over again, as uh, you yourself uh, said at the beginning, you know, it made you aware of this, uh, you know, in, in, in a way that, you know, it, it's, it was very troubling to you. So, um, you know, but coming back to future excavations and investigations related to residential schools, how do we, um, how do we, um, you know, what steps should we take to ensure that these are conducted with uh, the greatest amount of transparency, sensitivity, and commitment to commitment to the truth? Yeah, that's actually a key question, because the one Mm -hmm. thing that we know is that when government gets involved and tells us how to live our lives and how to take action and take steps forward, it in my experience, from what I've read, uh, seen and experienced, like it's it never works out. Right. So this first things first, um, you know, government cannot be leading the work to Mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, to seek truth and justice in this process. So. I think we can all agree on that principle, or maybe some would disagree with me, but I think, you know, a lot of us would agree that government needs to stay out of the way on this one, especially. Um, mm-hmm. the, the communities, like, I'm a huge fan of the principle of self-determination um, in the sense that if a community, like, it's up to a community to decide what it's mm-hmm. going to undertake and to what degree. There are some Indigenous teachings um, that, uh, set out very clearly where the body, you know, where the spirit leaves the body, that's where the body is to stay, right? There are other indigenous protocols and, uh, an ideology where, um, you know, where that, uh, you know, that body has to be returned home. Um, Mm -hmm. right. So like, who are we to say armchair quarterbacks over here, how like some small community and like, Northern BC is going to undertake, um, you know, their work on this front. So I think letting communities lead for themselves, you know what, Rupa, like maybe some communities just don't want to deal with it at all and that's okay. Right. Like maybe they're just not ready. Um, Mm -hmm. so I try, uh, to reserve judgment and encourage others to do the same and just say, listen, imagine like your kid or, you know, your cousin, Uh, you remember they never made it home. And then you and your family are now faced with this very emotional, very challenging issue uh, question. And how are, you know, how are you going to be able to kind of step through that in order to get to a decision as to whether, you know, how you would go about dealing with this? I would say on average, Canadians would struggle big time if they had, if they were faced with that decision. So communities, I think, you know, need the time and should be taking the time uh, to yeah. undertake that work. Uh, final question for you, Karen. Um, how do we promote 
uh, reconciliation. Uh, do do steps like uh, land acknowledgments, uh, and I have a view on land acknowledgments. Um, I personally think that um, you know they're not actually addressing the concerns of indigenous communities. You know, it is just basically. Um, you know, it's it's the laziest thing to do, in my opinion, when indigenous communities are struggling to get clean drinking water in a G7 nation. Um, so, you know, do, do steps like that really help promote reconciliation? Are indigenous people actually, I know you can't speak on behalf of everybody, but just speaking for yourself, do you think those things make a difference in the end? So my kind of like quick answer to that is, if they weren't happening, you and I wouldn't be talking about it right now. So mm-hmm. number one, if it seeks to challenge, you know, to create uh, discourse and dialogue, uh, whether it's about the very nature of whether we should do them, whether or not it's sufficient to do them or insufficient, and I agree with you, like it seems quite topical and performative uh, at mm-hmm. times, Um But nonetheless, I'm a huge fan of discussion and dialogues, one of the reasons I am joining you here today. Um, And and by that, I mean, like, uh, not, you know, not with people that you would necessarily agree with, right? Like, it's okay to have tough conversations with people who may come at it from a different uh, ideology, a different experience, um, different considerations. That said... um, Land acknowledgements. Uh, so I created an app called Whose Land. Uh, it's web-based and you can go to the Apple store. We were the featured app this year on June 21st, which is pretty exciting. So we're 2 million view uh, users today. Uh, awesome since we just launched like four-ish years ago. Um, and essentially we created it for this very reason. Number one, like where are people going to get their information? Well, now there's an app for that. So you go to the app and you look around and you you can there's there's an option where you can plug in your city and it'll auto populate like which treaty territory you're in what nations would have been there before um what are the closest communities to that city and then from there like you know have the um curiosity to look it up and learn more about the history of that territory um mm. and uh you know like you learn things like um, uh, let's say in Toronto, uh, everyone I think knows Spadina. Um, that's actually one of the original trails that ran from the lakeshore, uh, up into, uh, the escarpment here. And, uh, its original name is Espadina. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. so naturally became Spadina. Um, and then you can imagine, you know, like why they would have been running up and down that trail, over to the water, what contact would have looked like at that point, right? There's a lot of information and history out there and stories that make it really compelling. So there's that kind of like more inquisitive angle. And then, uh, so like learn more about the place that you're standing on. I think it's like a natural, you don't have to be in Canada for that. Like, but then there's the action part to your point. I actually don't see land acknowledgements as land acknowledgements anymore. I see them as like statements of reconciliation, So you're acknowledging where you are. Great. But like, what are you doing personally and like collectively in whatever institution that you represent? Like, what are you doing to contribute to the solution? Like, I'm a huge, huge fan of result. I love your point that you raised about 
you know, we don't even have clean drinking water in these communities across the country. Like what's up with that? That's, that's not okay. So why not use that opportunity to question, to challenge, but also to commit to some sort of contribution to like moving ourselves in, 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 uh, in the right direction? Well, that's uh, very well said, Karen. And, um, you know, I know you have to go, but uh, I really appreciate this uh, great conversation with you. Um, uh, and, you know, it was uh, uh, a privilege to get your insight into this very important topic uh, on this third anniversary. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Um, sorry, I just want to raise a, 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 like a, another point before we close I'd be curious to hear you mentioned at the beginning of your show of the show that um, the disparity between um, Indigenous people in Canada versus immigrant families yeah. and individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a point that not a lot of people are talking about, uh, but it's certainly a point that myself and you know m- many cousins and I talk about from time to time, um, yeah. and it's something that we have taken note of. And we question and challenge ourselves to determine why is that, right? Um, But that said, you know, there's no data and there's a whole other issue around like data sovereignty and questions around collecting data about Indigenous people. I would say qualitatively. So yes, there there are disparities. And yes, you know, we're challenged to kind of turn ourselves around within a generation or two if you were to draw a comparator to immigrant families. but at the same time, qualitatively, I think you look around and you can see a lot of Indigenous people who are, you know, stepping into their place in society. And what I'm seeing, particularly with the generation that are in their 20s right now, they were raised by parents who made it okay for them there was, there was no shame in being Indigenous, right? Like mm. that generation, the, the 20-year-olds and the teens today, it's parents who are in their 30s and 40s who now understand the shame that was caused by the church and state and have fundamentally rejected that and, un, and are walking through the world very proudly to be who they are as Anishinaabe, as Indigenous people. And you can imagine what it's like to be raised by that messaging. And so that's what we're seeing in teens and 20-year-olds today very strongly rooted and positioned in their identity and proud, uh, but also equipping themselves with tools, you know, like sure university degrees, but like, you know, trade certification or whatnot, Mm. and really kind of trucking forward um, and reclaiming, you know, a place uh, within their communities um, and really moving things in a pretty awesome direction. So I'm with you. There are disparities, but I'm a huge fan of looking at the flip side of things. What, you know, what improvements, what steps forward, what advancements are we making? And I'm see, I'm, I'm really encouraged about it. Like we're making strides here. No, that's, uh, thank you for um, um, giving us that perspective. That should have been one of my questions to you, actually. Maybe you should do the show, but that is a very va- valuable perspective because what is the current, uh, how are young Indigenous uh, people doing these days? You know, what are they thinking of? How, how do they see themselves in this world? Where do they see their future? And these are very, very important questions. And yes, I mean, the data show that um, uh, Indigenous communities uh, fare poorly on a range of social 
socioeconomic indicators relative to other groups, including immigrants. But there is also there's also a lot of hope within this community, as you point out, and that's uh, that's that's very important. And uh, thank you for uh, sharing that with us. And I'm heartened. I'm hoping that this gap will close in you know in a generation or two, or perhaps even less. Um, and uh, and and you know and then we won't be having these kinds of conversations hopefully yeah. but uh but thank you so much karen and uh, i really hope to have you again soon and uh really uh, enjoyed this conversation and for sharing your perspective with us thanks so much happy to join thanks thanks, thanks.